0: I um, have been so impressed. I mean, look at my face. I'm not just saying it because you say that when you go places. Um, To the point of tears even, uh, being here and seeing how many people really have a heart to do the the hard stuff. Um, So a lot of times in church planning, what happens is there's a thrust to go after what we call low-hanging fruit which means the people who are easiest to reach. But I'm not seeing a preference for that, and I'm not seeing anything that says there's one style of church that we should reach out to and one way to reach people for Christ and one group that's easier to reach. I'm not seeing any of that at all. And um, I've done this now for about 40 years, and I've never seen as much in, in one space. I've never seen as many people who really have that kingdom heart for that that day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord, that every man, woman, child um, will be able to um, just hear the gospel and respond. So you've ministered to me, and even if I went home and didn't speak, you've ministered to me. Let me tell you kind of a direction that I have for today. Um, So as I work in a field where... We, we also, like you, we're a very multi-ethnic context, and many of our churches are multi-ethnic churches. In fact, um, with the exception of some of our African-American churches, almost all of the churches that are English-speaking are multi-ethnic, and that's been true for over 20 years. And we're the first time that I um, said that I was going to start a multi-ethnic church, and we had only been in San Francisco for a couple of years, and we were going to start, and people said, you can't do that. You're violating the, the homogeneous unit principle. You can't start a multi-ethnic church. And recently I had a, a young man who had never heard that before. He said, well, who came up with that? Hitler? And um, <laughs> 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 I, I, <laughs> I actually believe that that's a good principle, And but we, we redefined what it means to be homogeneous in a different way than we used to. So um, anyhow, let I me mean, I'm not a very mechanical person, but I guess up means up and down means down, right? So um, anyhow, but we did that. And when we did that, the neighborhoods around where we lived in San Francisco said to us, we're advertising a multi-ethnic church. And they said, what do you mean by that? When you go to Fresh Choice Restaurant, I think that was or maybe a soup plantation back in those days. Is that a multi-ethnic restaurant or is it just a restaurant? <laughs> And when you go to Target, is that a multi-ethnic store or is it just a store? And so we began realizing that w- with the people who didn't know Christ, there was a no segregation uh, in, in San Francisco even 20-something years ago. Back then, however, um, what it seemed like was happening is that only um, you could have a multi-ethnic staff, but the senior pastor had to be white. Anybody experienced that before? But now we have people of all different ethnicities who are leading multi-ethnic church. In fact, the church that my husband and I attend is a brand new church. And the pastor is a, um, an, a vegan artist, African-American, <laughs> and fits really well into Oakland, California. So we're having fun with that. comes out of the Sojourn Network. So um, we're going to talk about multi-ethnic churches and multi-ethnic contexts. And here's where I'm going with this. Um, I I want to give you a tool that's easy for pretty much anybody to use. And so um, a couple years ago I was thinking about how do we teach people how to have a higher cultural intelligence. And um, one of my friend's father um, wrote a book called The Five Love Languages that you guys know, uh, many of you know Gary Chapman's book. And it occurred to me you could take The Five Love Languages and use that across cultures to be able to help people to plant multi-ethnic churches and know what to do in regular, just regular, everyday multi-ethnic context so that you could take those same principles. And so we began doing that and experimenting with that. So now that I've said that, some of you could just go home because you know how to take those. It you know, dawns on you, here's what I do. Um, but let me uh, let me just go. So tell me, how do I do this again? I, I just go this way? I have upside down? It's on the right, have the on the right. I'm sorry. It's not doing anything. I'm sorry. Oh, they didn't, I'm not plugged in not moving. There you go. you just push hard now. I've got to push harder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a girl. <laughs> but mine doesn't say that. Do I have to move, move mine manually? Yeah, sorry. Okay, that's all right. Okay. So um, a few things. One is that um, in our cities, as I mentioned earlier, everybody just lives together. The reality is we're all together. And whether we like it or not, because some people don't, and whether we like it or not, we're all together and got to figure it out. Our kids attend school together. We go to the same restaurants, same post offices, et cetera. So that's just a reality. The next thing is, is that, that the emerging worldview, whether you call it postmodernism or something else, has a value of celebrating and respecting and protecting diversity of all kinds. So um, uh, that's that's translating in how we understand People, I want to be around people, but we're talking about plant life, um, animal life. We want to protect that kind of diversity, but we also are longing for diversity rather than sa- sameness. And that's happening at a different pace in different parts of the country, but it's for sure happening where I live. And the younger the person, the more likely they are to want to be in a context that's very diverse and to choose that. Something else that's really important is Latinos are the largest immigrant population still entering the US, partly because of proximity. But the second is that Asian Indians are the second largest. And one out of every um, six people in the world is an Asian Indian. That's how big India is. And they're moving here, and they're moving among us. And we're just not used to that. There's a different worldview, different religions, different behaviors, et cetera. And we need to learn that. In Canada, the Chinese are number one and Asian deans are number two. Another thing is, is just like San Francisco, this is a very global local contest. So you, so you guys, how many people here own passports? How many people? Look at that, and amazing, because we expect to travel, right? So the first time I ever got a passport is when I moved to San Francisco. Um, I, I just never had thought about that before, but I raised my daughter, believing that, that she could travel the world, and she does. And you're raising your children to believe that, too. Have you traveled with your children to other places in the world already? Some of you? Yeah, it's important. My daughter's first visitors, when she brought her from the hospital, were three Somali men. And um, we, I when I, she was in my womb, I was playing um, cassette tapes. Back then, that was the day, cassette tapes, and, um, and that were in Spanish and Chinese and everything. I wanted her to be part of that. Um, so look at Harris County for a little bit. Um, this is this is from 2017, um, and I showed some of you this earlier. But um, Dari Farsi, so that would be Iranian, and it would be um, you see this large Hispanic population. But that's not a surprise. Um, Dari Farsi says, Iranian and Afghan people. Chinese is very interesting to me. The Census Bureau does not talk about different Chinese languages. It doesn't look at um, Mandarin and Cantonese and uh, and Toysinese. It does not look at that. And I don't know why. Um, My guess is that China likes to see itself as one and doesn't want to be defined by the different languages. It thinks everybody should be Mandarin. So I think it's probably an honor and respect for the Chinese Government, Look at that, Vietnamese, you're one of the largest Vietnamese populations um, in all of, of North America, really. Um, Urdu, that's what a lot of your Pakistani uh, people here. And you are the, have the largest Urdu-speaking population of any county in all of uh, North America. No, of all of the United States. I don't know about North America, it might be true. A lot of Telugu people speaking here. We got people here speaking Telugu as well. Large African population, especially West African. Anyhow, just look at all of those. And you have so many more, but you probably didn't realize that you can actually take from the Census Bureau. If you go to um, the fact finder side of the U.S. Census Bureau and look for the B16001 table, it actually doesn't just say, here are the Indians. It says, here are 10 different languages of Indian. That you can speak. I mean, just you can just find all of that. The 162 largest counties in America actually allow you to do that. Did it? Oh, there it is. Okay. Um, now this one is a little bit um, older. It's from 2015, and it's a metro area. And I don't have the data is not available for 2017. But look at the area. THE LARGE METRO AREA, HOW MANY DIFFERENT PEOPLE YOU HAVE FROM DIFFERENT KIND OF LANGUAGE GROUPS. WE CAN GIVE THIS TO YOU GUYS LATER, OR YOU CAN, AGAIN, YOU CAN JUST GO TO THE B16001 TABLE. I SAY IT IN MY SLEEP. I'M A NERD. Um, SO WHAT DO WE DO? SO CULTURAL HUMILITY IS SOMETHING THAT'S VERY DIFFICULT, I THINK, FOR MANY OF US TO PRACTICE. We're able to, um, we need to be able to, I really like talking with both hands. (laughs) We really need to be able to acknowledge other and not see our own culture as the culture, the number one culture. And we need to um, relate to people with aspects of their own cultural identity that's important to them, whatever is important to you. So um, uh, one of the things that um, some people did, I know when, it's just a very small thing, but when Black Panther movie came out, um, there was a church that wanted to give an, a local African-American church um, the tickets for the first day of the show to go and see the Black Panther movie with their youth. And that was a really important thing. It was acknowledging something that, that another culture other than this church was saying was very important to them. Um, but there, you know, just how we practice cultural humility. So we're not always right. We're not always doing the things the best way, or the right way. Um, that's being acknowledged in other fields right now, but it's not really being acknowledged in the church field the way it needs to be. I'm seeing it practiced, but we don't know what to call it. Um, so CQ. CQ is cultural intelligence. So you've heard of EQ before is emotional intelligence. IQ is intelligence quotient. is CQ. And um, we're beginning to uh, become aware of that. So it means something about how able are you to create collaboration with people who think and act differently than you um, in a very culturally uh, diverse context. So a church can do that um, just as much as any other organization can do that. Fingers are not that strong. Okay. So this is kind of a, a picture for you. Um, so um, you may not know a lot, but you inside of yourself, what I'm seeing here is a lot of drive. A lot of people who really care about the cultures of the world. And maybe maybe you're one of them. This is not mine. It's from this um, uh, David Livermore. Is actually really good at this kind of stuff. And speaks to Christians about it as well. Um, so my drive makes me care enough that I want to attain knowledge. So maybe that drive is external, maybe is internal. Maybe there are reasons motivating it um, that I don't even fully understand, but, I, but I, I want it. So I grew up as a kid in New York, and my uncle was in the military, traveled the world, bought me dolls and postcards from other countries, and that's where it started for me. That was good enough as a starting place. Um, But what the drive does is cause us to say, I really don't understand, I don't know this, and what do I do? I figure out how to learn it, and there are all kinds of ways to do that. And then strategy, what are some ideas that I could put into action, and finally action. Here's what I do because this is what I believe. Okay, so let me give you an example. I have a heart for Muslims. And the reason I do is because Muslims, God has made Muslims very responsive to me. So when I take Uber, which I do a lot because it's much cheaper, a very dense, compact city in San Francisco, seven miles by seven miles. And it's much cheaper to take Uber than it is for me to um, park my car, to drive and then park my car downtown. So I take Uber. But one of the reasons I take Uber is because there's so many Muslims who are taking the Uber, and it's an opportunity. So um, I I spoke earlier that because I'm an older woman now, I can get away with things I couldn't when I was younger. So I can sit in the front seat with a Muslim driver and talk to them. And I've had these crazy things happen. Like I was in London uh, a year and a half ago or so. I was in London, and I got into an Uber, and this Turkish um, Uber driver, Looks at my cross and he says to me, I want you to pray that somebody kills the dictator of my country. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's not what I'm called to do. <laughs> I didn't say that. Tell me about it. <laughs> and he automatically starts talking. And my husband's in the back seat, but I'm in the front seat because I tend to be the more overt evangelist um, of the two of us. And um, there's an opportunity to tell him about, he just doesn't like the role of a dictator. And so I was able to tell him about how um, democracy in America, I believe, in part happened at the same era as um, when Luther was talking about um, all have sinned, and it was kind of the, that became part of the Christian vocabulary to look at the fact that all have sinned, fell short of the glory of God. Didn't matter if it was a philosopher, a dictator, a pope—that everybody could sin except for Jesus. And he really liked that. He liked hearing that. And when our, our cab ride was done, we he exchanged emails with my husband, because that was still appropriate not to do with me. And he wouldn't take a tip because we you know, we had become friends on that that conversation. So the Muslim thing is being really important. So we're leaving for Shanghai on Saturday and I've already looked for the Muslim restaurants near my hotel. There are a lot of Chinese Muslims. Um and they're very much persecuted right now, the Uyghur Muslims especially. So I've looked at the Muslim, there's 18 Muslim Chinese restaurants in the Southwest region here. And um, I think that's really important. And probably you don't know a lot of people reaching out to Chinese Muslims here, but maybe somebody will take it on. So I look up and find the knowledge to be able to reach out. I also discovered that 70% of the Muslims in, in, here are Pakistani. Or 70, maybe 70% of the Pakistanis are Muslim. Um, I find out where they live, where the people who have been living here for a long time live, and where the people who have um, only been here for a while live. And I just go through. And how do I strategize? I let people know. So one of my strategies is to find out about the Chinese Muslim here, because I care about them. And I tell you, because I'm planning for one of you, hoping that one of you actually likes that. It matters to you. Sorry, I I need help. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not moving. Ah, okay, All right now I, I moved two instead of one. Okay, <laughs> benefits um, for the church unity between all believers. Also, another thing is, um, maybe you've never thought about this before, but we can learn from other Christians. There's something, a project that came out a long time ago called the Human Genome Project. Anybody hear of that before? Okay, so Human Genome Project actually intentionally chose people from the, the different parts of the world who had different worldviews because they felt like they could map the genes of the human body if people saw it with different eyes. And one of the beauties for me is that if I get to see the eyes of Jesus, I get to see the Lord through your eyes, I see him differently in a more complete way than if I just see him through my eyes. And that's what the Human Genome Project was about and taught me that lesson. Um, I can learn about Jesus because your eyes see him differently, um, and I miss out some things. Um we want to bless and encourage people in diverse communities. We want to learn how to share um, life's um, Christ's love more effectively. We want to move towards a day when every knee bows and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. I was um, telling Tiffany this morning that I remember the first time I ever heard that. I was on the Apache Reservation, Arizona, planting my first church when I was a, had been a Christian for just a couple months. And the Apache pastor walked out of where he was staying, and his whole face was aglow, um, just amazing. I'd never seen anybody's face look like that before. Why do your face look like that? I can't believe it. And Well, I've been reading the Bible. What are you reading? Philippians 2, 9 through 11. He said, I'm imagining a throng of people from every nation, from every language, representing everybody in the world, and Jesus is walking through that crowd. And as he's doing that, everyone is bowing down to worship. And for me, when I heard that, it was the most beautiful thing I had ever heard in my entire life. And I want to be part of that. I want my life to reflect that. And that's why I began doing that kind of stuff. So we're moving towards that day together. Um, So I've already told you guys that the reason, the last time I did this presentation was with a group of Koreans. So that's why I've got a Korean. I thought I'd leave that there. So that's the Korean love languages. So it's based on the five love languages. And in case some of you have never heard of what they are before, uh, words, the words of affirmation, time, spending time with people, giving and receiving gifts, acts of serving, and then touch, touching and not touching. And then I want to add another one, food. (laughs) It's not the same as time and serving, is it? Would anybody else add that? Do you think food is a good one to add? Yeah, yeah. Especially cross-culturally. And why do we do this? We do that because Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you should love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. But how do we do this across culture? So, words. Um, So, have you guys heard um, about things like hot and cold cultures? Heard that before? So, um, I lived in San Diego for so many years, and San Diego is right next to the Mexico border, and a lot of the population of San Diego was Latino. And, and it was a very warm c- culture, warm and affectionate with words, with touch, and just embracing. Everything was warm. Then I moved to, to um, San Francisco in a very Chinese neighborhood, and they just did things differently. It was a much more cooler kind of a climate. I was raised in a culture um, that was my father was from um, Norway, and the Scandinavian culture overlaid the culture of our family, and I had to learn how to do things differently. Also, what words are okay and not okay? Who speaks first and, and why in the conversation? So sometimes, um, it, you know, a, a, an older person can speak, sometimes a younger person. Eye contact. So some of you have been through church planner assessments. And if I go through an assessment, for instance, with a, a young Korean man who's just moved here from Korea I figure that person probably isn't going to give me as much eye contact as somebody from some other cultures might give me because he's respecting me by not, get, he's not being shifty. He's just using his eyes in a culturally appropriate way. Um, the nuances of non communication. When's it okay to get around to business? So right now, um, my job, when I first moved to the Bay Area, my job was to start white churches. Well, how on earth do you do that in the San Francisco Bay Area? So then they added black churches, and that was some. And then they added Chinese churches, and then they added, uh, my my bosses added um, churches in, um, um, you know, South Asian contexts, and then they added churches in Muslim contexts, and now I've got Latino churches. And you can imagine my time is pretty stretched, but I know that it's really important in some of those cultures that I sit down at a meal with them for a while with their family, and we not talk about business first. We we have to take the time to talk about their personal life and their family, I would need to just make enough time, and that's just something you have to learn. Um, is confrontation direct or indirect? So um, I know that we say Christians should talk to each other if there's a problem, but a lot of cultures... You actually go around and talk to somebody else. And, well, maybe that's something that is learned later in life as a Christian, later in discipleship practices, and that we have to put up with some of the indirect stuff at first. Um, We also need to learn how to choose our words. So, for instance, if I say many, which I do a lot, um, or early, or most, or hot, or soon, or poor, what does that mean? It means a different thing. So poor, does that mean that I don't have a six-bedroom house? Does it mean I'm, I live in San Francisco and the median price of a house is over a million dollars? Do I still get to be poor and live in a two-bedroom house there? You know, what does that all mean? Also, um, idioms or phrases, to learn not to do this, you know. So um, these are old-fashioned expressions. Hit the books, and maybe that's not used anymore the younger generation or stab somebody in the back, what does that mean if you're not, you know? So we have to learn not to do that. So something, <laughs> not not to stab someone in the back, not to use the language. <laughs> um, so um, I, I should say, and I think I get to this somewhere in the, in, the, in the conversation, but all of this, are you familiar with the idea of bounded and centered set? So. Um, so this is like a centered set way of going. So we choose something, and we choose a direction to travel, but there's no perfection in it, that you could learn this for a million years, and if you live here the rest of your life, you will never learn to be perfect in this, and we get to make mistakes, especially when people know we care about them. I was sharing with somebody earlier um, that when I first started working with Cambodians in, in the, um, the early 1980s, And they were first coming to the United States, and they were refugees. I was loving on um, new Cambodian children, and I touched the head. Anybody know what that means? In Cambodian culture, you touch somebody's head? What does it mean? Anybody? This is where the spirits reside, and you're not allowed to touch the child's head. I made a mistake, but they told me about it because I was in a relationship with them. They told me about it right away. And gave me the opportunity to never do that again. <laughs> so I didn't. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Also, jokes don't translate, you know, across culture very well. So we just got to, you know, be careful. Um, there are also these, um, there's something called paralanguage. language So, um, it's not moving. Yes, here we go. So paralanguage is um, just the nonverbal stuff that we use. So sometimes, um, if you point while well, you're stating direction, so uh, pointing in some cultures can be a very, very negative thing. It means something different. Uh, it can mean something like a different finger going up, in the, you know, in the room. Um, so something accentuating meaning of something. Um, Sarcasm in your voice is paralanguage, par like, yeah, you did a great job with that. Do I mean you did a great job? No, 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 no. And what does great job mean? Anyhow, it's a fairly vague term, isn't it? Um, so regulating um, your nonverbal cues, being careful that you're really communicating, and substituting, um, uh, you know, verbal and nonverbal kinds of things. So, for instance, we went to um, India. Um a few years ago. And um, it, actually, this is a f- we went about 12 years ago, this, what this happened then. And we had a cab driver. And the cab driver, we put some money in his hand, and we said, is, is that enough? And he shook his head. And we said, OK, would you like some more? <laughs> <laughs> and he shook his head again. And then we gave him some more, and he shook his head. But this time, he's grinning. We're thinking, this is it. And that's how we learned. <laughs> That no can mean yes. and you know, that, That's just a different gesture that's used in a different culture. Yes. Yeah, it was not a good way to learn it for us. <laughs> um, so anyhow, all of the nonverbal cues, cues that you see, um, you see the thumbs up sign, what it means in different cultures there. Um, I'll let you just read that. So, <laughs> um, Yeah. Here's some good ways to use um, words, though, to bless a people, to speak words of peace into a people. Years ago, Oakland had a bad rap, had a bad name, but now um, Oakland is really close to San Francisco. I love Oakland. I've always loved Oakland, and I love more than the Warriors, oh, you know, there. I love Oakland, and so... Um, When I go to Oakland, one of the things I want to do is speak to residents who don't expect me to speak well of Oakland because I'm from San Francisco, You know, to actually say good things to them about their city and tell them how much I love it, to imagine a positive future for Oakland, to good gossip. Do you know that word, good gossip? It means to make sure you get your word out, but you do it about good things instead of negative things. Discover what's beautiful to people and use their language for what's beautiful. so I couldn't even imagine not have going gone to the, um, you know, uh, to the, the playoff games of the Warriors um, last year. You know, it's just like you, you have to go. Um, write and say kind words. So when you guys are on mission, how do you actually speak well to the people about themselves? And that's a really great way to be on mission and use cultures. The second one we're going to go to is quality time. And I'm going to have to go through as fast as I'm seeing it's 110. Um, so um, one thing I think is that um, sometimes the culture of where I live in the Silicon Valley is too time conscious. We don't pay enough attention so in the in the story of the Good Samaritan the Good Samaritan had time in his life and as well as money in his life to give he could give up a little bit of time so if you any of you do art you know what have having a page that has white space on it looks like. A good Samaritan had white space in his life so that he could give both time and, and, and money. Jesus came to earth, spent time with people. Sabbath rest is a gift of time. Patience is a fruit of the spirits and requires a different way of time. Dorothy Bass, actually, in her book, Receiving the Day, does a wonderful job. If you feel like this is something, a learning curve for you, how might our experience of time change if we receive time as a gift of God? So um, sometimes cultures think about past, present, and future. Um, so I live in a very future tense um, world. My husband, think this is actually a good marriage principle too. Uh, my husband is a really great present tense person. Um, he um, is incarnational in everything he does. His way of life is giving and paying attention. He can't walk by somebody in the street who has a need and not pay attention to that person. Whereas I'm all there out in the future. But the Lord's Prayer, if we think about it, the Lord's Prayer is an every tense language prayer. Give us this day, present tense, our daily bread. Forgive us our debts and help us to forgive others, past tense. Lead us not into temptation, future, his kingdom come, future. And so Jesus really wants us to do It's Another way it's a model prayer for me. He wants us to do all three tenses really well. But we don't know how to respect that with other people. Um, uh, so uh, future-oriented cultures go by the clock. Um, so um, I was kind of surprised last week. I was in a new um, church with mainland Chinese, and I thought that mainland Chinese and um, and the Chinese that have been here from Hong Kong for a long time uh, um, might be different, but I was surprised that what they, and I just thought that we wouldn't do this, but it's a church that came out of the church, a large church that started a church and and is trying to do things just like it, and it used one of those you know those clocks that time off like it's two minutes till, one minute to, ten seconds, nine seconds, eight. It did that, and I was like, part of me was kind of in culture shock that they did that for mainland Chinese. I didn't expect it, and I have to talk to the planter because I want to find out whether he did that intentionally because it matches the culture or just didn't think about it. So anyhow. Uh, cultures do time differently. It's an interesting thing for me now that I have all these cultures I'm working with. How do I, in this minute, talk to um, a, um, a leader who, from Afghanistan, and in this minute, talk to a leader um, who's um, just um, a coffee roaster who lives in Oakland and is a, a white guy? How, how do I how do I transfer that around? And it's not easy all the time. Um, so that's enough for this one. Actually, you can kind of imagine it. Another th- way you think about time is holidays. So we in the West live our cultural. I'm not, I'm going to try to get everything done, and therefore I'm not going to read everything from here. You can get this later. So we have um, we live our calendar life on a on a um, kind of the, the when people go to school, the semester system. And so um, people go on holidays at certain times a year. And they're also open, like marketing and stuff. That people are open to new things at certain times a year more than they are to other. So the beginning of the fall and kind of January, February, when we found out we can't do all of our New Year's resolutions on our own. We need some help with them. Then we're ready for new things to come in our mind. So we do that. And we think about new clothes, new backpacks, all these things new we do at certain times a year with our children. And we keep on doing them as adults as well. And not other cultures do that, too, either, but they, all cultures have some kind of a new beginning. So last week was a Persian and Afghan New Year, but their Chinese um, Lunar New Year was a few months ago. So those are just really different. Sikhs do a different time of year. So think about one of the things you want to do as you're thinking about time is study the, the holidays and the special event times in your own uh, group. Diwali, Indian, Purim. Um, which works, perm is a good celebration for Iranians to tell you about, as well as Jewish people. Um, scheduling outreach events. If I'm working in a multi-ethnic church um, and I'm going to start my, um, I'm not going to do my big outreach events during the same week as a Chinese New Year if I've got a lot of Chinese people attending. I'm simply not. Um, something that might be helpful for you next year, zero um, two, 022020 two is a Sunday, so February second, two thousand twenty, and for cultures that think about things being lucky, that would be a good day to invite a lot of people to church. So think about using that day in a many, many different cultures. Um, so, um, anyhow, in summary, for holidays. Um, Yeah, um, be open to the holidays influencing your church scu- schedule. I had a church planner one time who was in a Latino neighborhood, and he, he did his big outreach event the same week as the the, the church. I mean, the, the community was doing the Cinco de Mayo celebration. And it's it's not just that Latinos wouldn't come that day, but the, the streets were crowded. And nobody could get to his church that day. It was almost funny that that, that happened to him, but he just didn't pay attention to his culture learn to greet people in relationship to their major holidays so one thing I do happy holidays is a way to kind of acknowledge that everybody has different holidays but what I do in San Francisco is before anybody says that to me I say so what holiday are you celebrating right now Christmas time and they tell me and I can I can not only do I know what their religious background is so I can go back to that person again and relate to them as Jewish or as um Muslim or whatever, but I've gotten to actually greet them in relationship where their holiday is. So it's a really nice way not to have to say happy holidays when I really don't mean happy holidays. I mean, I, I celebrate Christmas. And would you like to come to our homes on Christmas? Whatever. So gift giving. So um, I think that we can connect gift giving to scriptures really well. Um, so um, a lot of scriptures here that you guys can use. Um, giving and giving gifts um, biblically. We talked about giving and receiving well. Um, I told you about that already. Um, Cross cultural gift giving. So, who's receiving the gift? Is it a person or a group? What's the status of the receiver? What types of, of gifts are acceptable? What's the protocol? And should you reciprocate? You should not always reciprocate. So, um, in some In some cultures, it's appropriate not to take a gift the first time it's offered. So kind of look at, you know, if you're dealing with a particular culture or you have a church that has several cultures, kind of figure that out. Some cultures you say no a little bit before you finally say yes. So know that that's part of the interaction, how you handle it. So um, um, I found out the hard way in San Francisco that the Chinese bakery down the street wasn't serving me. It was used to me, and I hadn't learned to, to give and receive money with two hands instead of one. And they really, the older people that were had just recently come from China didn't want to interact with me because I didn't know how to give and receive money right. Um, that's an extreme thing, but they, but they didn't want to. Um, some cultures, a left hand is unclean. So uh, I'm left-handed, but when in, in India, I don't use my left hand. So in some cultures, giving and receiving scissors or... Something that has a a number four attached to it is not appropriate. Colors, folds, gift wraps, you know, all of that stuff matters in different cultures. I want to give you one because you have so many Pakistani here. And um, these you can just simply go online if you care. Um, You know, if you want to take a picture, that's fine. But you could actually, um, you know, just go online and, and just say, just, Say, what is the appropriate way to give gifts to Pakistani people? And this would pull up. Something like this would pull up. So one of the things about knowing these love languages is not that you learn how to do it perfectly, but you know that you can go and you know you should be asking the question. Acts of service. Um, We actually, a lot of times, the Christian churches know how to do this pretty well. Um, It's biblical. You can copy that if you want, but I'm going to turn the page in a minute again. Um, We simply need to know how to serve and be served. So part of that is to listen. Um, People don't always need what we think they need. So we might think somebody needs food. We might think that they need to learn English, but they don't want to learn English, you know. We might, do we care about the things that they care about? Do we even know what they care about? Um, we got a lot of Yemeni, Yemeni people around us, and it matters that I know that there's a famine in Yemen, and that I care about it, and maybe I can help work with the Yemeni people. Um, we have a guy working with Afghans named Tim, and years ago and he brought his computer with him and brought pictures of people's families to give to them. But he also he got together with the Afghan community in San Francisco and collected money. So the Christian churches and the Afghan community gave money together that he and an Afghan man brought. To help rebuild schools um, that the Taliban had torn down in Afghanistan, are we giving out of political correctness or something else? Who can serve? Who should not be served? How do you how you learn to change some of that? Um, so it also in churches like. Um, if people have a multi-ethnic church, are there people who are being represented in serving as one well as other visible um, areas? So are all of the, um, the lead positions in one service? They're probably not. Probably this church sounds so multi-ethnic that it actually has a visibility of all um, cultures in it. But, but do we know how to do that? I'm going to go to touch. And very biblical. Jesus used touch and ways that his culture used, well, um, we need to do that. But um, hugging is a big one. So one of our churches that I really love attending is just a large African-American church, and every single person gets really hugged really well, and it's like the huggiest, happiest church that I've ever been in. But I can't help going in there and wondering, there's so many... um, um, Muslims uh, that are African American in that community of Oakland, and I think, well, what if somebody brought somebody who is a Muslim and this woman who's a greeter? You know, I would probably not bring my Muslim friend to that church without really having a conversation. This is probably what's going to happen. The church isn't going to change. I already know that. And anyhow, you guys see the slides and you're laughing. <laughs> it's okay to laugh. <laughs> what's he doing to me? Um, so um, what I practice with, a lot of um, Muslims are more assimilated now. If I, if I go to a mosque or in some other way with a Muslim person, I wait to see if they're going to reach out their hand. And sh- if a Muslim man shakes out their, takes their hand and shakes it out to me, right hand, I, um, I will do that. So males and females, who pats who on the back, that can be a pretty negative thing. Who's allowed to hug or the kissing on the cheek things? Do you have a lot of Europeans that do kiss, kiss cheeking, cheek, cheek kissing here? <laughs> we do. So just to be aware um, of the missional gift of touch, uh, how various cultures, how you hold and touch babies. I remember one time we had a we have this race every year through San Francisco. It's called Beta Breakers. And people run naked, and they, they just run all kinds of, costume dress and everything and a friend who dressed up like a like a an archbishop or something like that. And um a lot of people on the parade route with babies, even though they knew this was a fake um pope, pope or archbishop, whoever he was, they held out their babies for for to be blessed. They just wanted that hug so much. And and he got to bless people's babies. And one more food. Yes. Yes. Um, so in Scripture, you know, we see this a lot. Um, sharing the Lord's Supper, Jesus eating in people's home, the manna in the wilderness, um, Passover Seder, Jesus sent out the 70 and telling him to eat in people's home. It's amazing in Scripture. But we need to d- use this gift too, baking, taking meals to the sick. These are not just female things for women to do. Men can do these kind of things too. Giving food to those in need, sharing the harvest bounty, and, and using festivities to, to do this in people's lives. But there are all these food taboos. Um, sorry. It's, going, it's not going the right way. Okay. So pork is not just Muslims. It's Jews and Sikhs and Jains and vegetarians and vegans. Um, Hindus, zoroastrians don't eat beef, and then finally, we we wasps, white like me, we don't eat insects, and that's a grasshopper there. It really is a picture of a grasshopper. So anyhow, are you kind of getting the idea, everybody? So take the take these love languages, and this is how to apply a lens, and you can t- you can take anybody in your church. ANY OF YOUR NEIGHBORS, YOU CAN TEACH SOMETHING ABOUT THIS. AND JUST LEARN HOW TO APPLY IT TO YOUR OWN CULTURE. AND THAT'S IT.